0: Hey guys, hope everyone is having a fantastic week. Um, Very excited about the guest that we have today, Kyle. uh, Christopher Ryan. He's written a couple of books, both of which I find really, really interesting. Sex at Dawn, also Civilized to Death. Mm -hmm. Both of them are about sort of the conditions in which human beings actually evolved, what that says about our innate nature, what it says about how we should live our lives, how society is structured and organized, all super interesting and very relevant things.
1: Yeah. uh, So plan on perving out, (laughs) you know, might lead with the more interesting, not interesting, but might lead with the more... Political stuff or you know whatever, but we well, eventually... gotta warm
0: the conversation up before you just dive right into sex.
1: I know you right? can't just be like, all right, so Christopher Ryan, nice to meet you. Anal, go. Right, That's... your
0: thoughts. Whoa, what, what are they what doing are in about? the ancestral <laughs> environment? Um, so this has been a good week, I would say, for both of us mm-hmm. because both of us this week got our well, you got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, so that means you're done.
1: One and done, baby. Whereas
0: I got the Moderna vaccine, so I got to go back for another one. But mm-hmm. still, I weirdly really sort of felt like it was. Like an accomplishment. Oh, totally. To make it to get the vaccine, you know?
1: Yeah, no, 100%. So uh, I'll tell everybody my story. So I, New York had just opened up the vaccine to everybody 30 plus. And there's only like a five-day span before they open up to everybody. Mm-hmm. So the 30-plus people have like a week to get their shit in with the fewer people looking for the appointments. Even having said that, it was book, 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 book son, like nonstop. I went to the CVS website a bunch of times to try to get an appointment. Book, 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 book right? So I had my mom, my aunt, and my sister, all of them working 24 7 checking every now and then trying to get me an appointment so anyway my mom ended up waking up super early one day just happened to stumble across an appointment that was about 10 or 15 minutes away from where i live yeah she signed me up for it. it you know i had i had to give my mom my sister and my aunt all my insurance information and stuff like i texted it to them took a picture of my card or whatever so anyway they had all that they uh they signed me up for it it was like 10 or 15 minutes away it was The appointment was for 3 o'clock on Monday. I basically had to, like, rush when I was done with my show to try to get over there. And um, so I show up. You you log in. There was a line. Even with me having an appointment, I still ended up getting the shot at 3.30 and not 3. And I had to wait on this line because everybody was thinking the same thing. So I didn't – some people got a choice in New York. Do you want the Johnson & Johnson? Do you want the Moderna or do you want the Pfizer? Yeah. I didn't get a choice. But I just lucked out that I happened to get the one that I really wanted, which was – the Johnson and Johnson And what's interesting Is that the one you got The Moderna and the mm-hmm. Pfizer Are what's called mRNA vaccines Which is the new technology Right That the government Just invested 500 million dollars In Moderna To try to you know Bring this thing to fruition Right
0: Well and it's important to say That th- they've been working On this technology For a decade a- As a so general
1: Coronavirus vaccine So in other words Like a-, a common cold vaccine The
0: mRNA technology Right So it's not like This thing just came out of it no, no, I'm no. always just very careful Because there are a lot of people Who are nervous about these vaccines I yeah. don't want you to think They just invented this technology no, no, this
1: year for this particular No, they didn't. But what happened was with COVID-19 hitting it, sort of lit a a fire under their ass to get it finished. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so Mm -hmm. that's why Trump bought doses before they even finished making it. You know, it was a big bet that they made on it. So anyway, that's the two predominant vaccines that have been out for a while. The Johnson & Johnson one, which sort of just came out more recently, is the traditional style of vaccine where they take like a dead virus that mimics COVID-19 and inject it into you. Right. Right. And so um, had the vaccine. Now when you read what most people's experience is, they say usually eight hours to 12 hours later, you'll experience maybe some mild symptoms, mm-hmm. right? So I got the vaccine at three, eight hours late, like, you know, around bedtime, I'm thinking maybe I'll feel some, I didn't feel anything. Yeah. I was good money, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, zero symptoms. I'm like, I'm done, son. Like I got, I'm good. Like I, I'm already, I had the vaccine. I'm not going to get any symptoms. Turns out that around Two or three o'clock in the afternoon. So basically, twenty full twenty-four hours later, had a little bit of a headache. Mm -hmm. Headache came on pretty quickly. Had a little bit of a headache. That lasted for about three or four hours. And you're not
0: a headache person. You don't normally I get
1: never headaches. get it, ever. Yeah. I really never get headaches. Um, and then the other thing that happened was I was definitely, like, usually I like it about 66 degrees in my house. It was all the way up at 72, and I was under the covers. And I took a shower, and I naturally turned that shit all the way up where it was really scorching hot water, which that tells me that my body temperature was higher, so I probably had a little bit of a fever. But, again, that went away in three or four hours. And then as soon as all the symptoms went away, and I had a little bit of a sore arm, but that went away, too. Yeah. I was like that's it so it was only three or four hours of a headache and i'm being a little warm and now that's it now i have the immunity and so oh it feels great great. i'm I'm walking around with the mask on like (laughs) you bitches don't i could take this shit off and i'm good
0: yeah i know it it actually is a really great feeling did you have any Um, symptoms or no very little i and i had the mass vaccination vaccination site experience in Mm -hmm. my at my hometown king george virginia ymca Um, All super well organized, super smooth, sore arm I had, maybe a little bit of chills and fatigue, very little. Of course, they say I have to get the second one. Mm. They say oftentimes the second one, you have more of a reaction. So we'll see what happens there. But, yeah, for me, fortunately, it was a very small deal. And actually, a little side benefit. um, So I live in the town that I grew up in, King George, where I grew up, high school, all that stuff. And um, so I still run into a lot of people that I grew up with. And I ran into the mom of one of my very good friends from high school who I hadn't been in touch with in probably over a decade. And she happened to be in town that week because of Easter so I got to catch back up with her so that was the that was the side silver lining that's a small town shit. the silver lining the extra added gold platinum level benefit of my uh, vaccination was I got to see an old friend
1: see you're so different than me because if I see somebody that I know from like high school I'm like <laughs> I don't want to talk to you.
0: (laughs) It's one of the things, it's actually one of the things that I love about living where I do. And the reason I live there is because my parents Mm -hmm. are there and I'm very close with them. And, um, You know, for my kids, I love them to be close with grandma and papa. My sister lives nearby and all of that's really, really important to me. But I actually do really love running into people that I grew up with. And I mean, this is a town I lived in that I lived in from the time I was born until I graduated high school and have come back periodically. Um, So this was, you know, I was very much in this community and at the time knew everybody there and all of their parents. And it really had that small town vibe. So... It's kind of a nice reality check for me when I run into somebody at the grocery store. And they don't know
1: who you are. Yeah. They don't know you as Crystal Ball. They know know you as as the one I played, like, softball with. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: exactly. Um, You know, swimming was my identity mostly then. But um, I also like it because it's so easy to get wrapped up in, like, whatever's going on on Twitter or somebody's mad at me or whatever. And then I run into someone like that, and I'm like – They don't know about this thing. They don't care about this thing. Mm -hmm. If I told them about this thing, they would be who gives a shit. Mm
1: -hmm. That's
0: kind of a nice, it's a nice reality check, too.
1: Yeah. Again, you're so much more social than me. You're way more extroverted than me. I don't want to talk to anybody. And to the extent I want to talk to anybody, it's people who I know and I have known for a really long time. And even then, I'm like, you got five minutes, You're a
0: true introvert. I'm kind of 50-50.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah, you're I I do see you as sort of 50 50 and I do see myself as like 100% introvert.
0: So we also got some interesting new stats this week about just how the billionaires have done during coronavirus. Let me pull this up. Uh, Some of these now, I mean, it's not going to surprise you. Um, This is from Forbes that they put out their list of billionaires and all the stats involved. So the billionaire club grew by nearly a third. So a third more billionaires during the it's pandemic. the American dream.
1: People are working their way up.
0: So while everyone else is getting screwed and sick and losing their jobs, worried about eviction, being, you know, temporary, like get, just being thankful for the $600 check they get from the government and everything, these people became billionaires. So now there are 2,755 billionaires. But this is the stat that actually kind of floored me. In the U.S., the top 400, I'm reading from the Washington Post right now. Top 400 wealthiest Americans now own the equivalent of 18% of GDP in wealth. That's twice as much as they did in just 2010. So in one decade, they have doubled the amount of wealth that they have as a percent of GDP. I mean, that's, that's wild. That is like an escalating level of inequality that, I mean, it may well be unprecedented.
1: Well, this is what happens when you don't have very clear redistributive policies. This is what happens when, you know, um, you don't have very high top marginal tax rates on the wealthy and you don't have high corporate taxes. Yeah. This is the result. And, you know, I, I always I remember reading the numbers um, back when the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession hit and the parallels between the Great Recession and the Great Depression were Amazing, like so. Uh, I'm going off memory here, but one of the facts was um, w- during times when the country is economically healthy, the top one percent makes about eight to ten percent of the income. That that's during healthy economic times. Mm-hmm. Right before the Great Depression, they made about twenty-five percent mm. of the income. So massively lopsided, right? Yes. Exact same thing for the Great Recession, where it was about 25% of the nation's income went to the top 1%. So when you see how lopsided it is, that has reverberating effects and, and dire consequences. So you know, one of the facts that I've brought up a number of times that I cannot get this fact out of my head, it was a study by the Rand Corporation that came out pretty recently. They found that, I'm not sure if the year was 1974 or 1978, but like mid 1970s until today, the top one percent or fraction of the top one percent has effectively stolen 47 trillion dollars from the bottom 90 percent 47 trillion so in other words if you just kept the pay ratio mm-hmm. the top one percent to the average worker the same as it was in the post-world war ii period to today the bottom 90 percent every person in the bottom 90 percent would have 1144 dollars extra per month every month their entire life. Mm. So that shows you how out of whack we've gotten. There was a study from a few years ago that found that for the first time ever, billionaires pay a lower effective tax rate than working people. That's another amazing fact. Uh, 78% of working people, this is pre-COVID, 78% of Americans lived paycheck to paycheck. That's pre-COVID, imagine it was like post-COVID. Yeah. Half of working people make $30,000 a year or less. So you have this like gilded age disparity. And what's happening is you're actually seeing a, a in real time, you're seeing a shift in Americans' opinions of billionaires because everybody knows that with the pandemic, it's not anybody's fault that they're hurting financially. Like right. It's not your fault. It's something totally. It's an yeah, extenuating circumstance. You can't
0: circumstance. even spin a story about personal can't spin responsibility. It. But
1: at the same time, the billionaires are getting phenomenally more wealthy. Right. They're not. Working harder, they didn't earn shit. Right. And the people at the bottom who were getting hosed didn't do anything wrong. And so now you're seeing it's reflected in the opinion polls. I know you cover this on Rising, I cover this on Secular Talk. People are now getting to the point where the whole myth of meritocracy, the myth of the American dream, they get it's bullshit now. Yeah. They get that it's not the harder you work, the further you go. Jeff Bezos didn't earn over hundred bill. How do you earn over $100 billion? Right, It's not even possible to earn. Like, what are you talking about? Right. That's totally arbitrary. So we need to set up a system that's more fair in its distribution of wealth, and that gets closer to an actual meritocracy.
0: Well, and this gets into, as well, what Biden is proposing in terms of corporate tax increases, which are very, very modest. And- I support that. That's good. That's an improvement, right? He wants to up the corporate tax rate to 28%. Of course, Manchin immediately came in and was like, 25, how about 25? I'm serious. And of course, this is, which is so typical Democrat and so typical Joe Biden, he immediately comes out. So the proposal itself is already like inadequate. And then the minute he un- rolls it out, he's like, but I'm open to compromise and it's going to get changed. So don't worry. So you immediately just roll over and like, whatever you want, we'll just like make it whatever you want. So um, it's, it's a very modest proposal. There's another per- provision that would um, require companies that are very profitable to pay uh, 15% minimum corporate tax. Well, he changed the rules on that, too, and watered it way down so that that provision would literally only apply to 45 companies in the entire country. And again, look, maybe those are the largest companies. Maybe that makes a tremendous difference because we have so many monopolies. And so if you're hitting the biggest 45 companies, maybe that makes a difference. But again, it's it starts so from such a small place. And there's two important points here. One is when you see the amount of wealth that was accumulated in this last year, Mm -hmm. and even putting coronavirus aside over the last decade, you really come to realize how inadequate these policies are. And two, he frames all of this simply as a means to pay for the infrastructure package. Now, personally, I don't give a shit if the infrastructure package is paid for. What I care about is that redistribution as an end in and of itself. Because if you continue to have this escalating inequality, first of all, you're going to have a very hard time having anything that even you can pretend is small d democratic Mm -hmm. when you have that vast a disparity of wealth and i mean you could make an argument about that we've already sort of reached the point beyond which that's really a tenable situation but second of all yeah i mean you just these when you have that much money wealth and power concentrating these few people it ends up in an extraordinarily ugly place that has direct ramifications on working people's lives so i don't like the the proposals themselves are really watered down He immediately is like, and I'll compromise on them. Woefully, like, inadequate to the task, given how quickly wealth has concentrated and how much that has been escalating and escalating and escalating. And then I just despise the deficit hawk framework of, like, this is just a means to the end of paying for the infrastructure package.
1: Yeah. And, you know, my thought, as you describe all that, is that we're basically moving deck chairs around on the Titanic. That's it. You know, and... If you don't have leadership that's actively hostile to capital, whatever you achieve is going to be a joke. It's going to barely make a dent. And you made a point in there that I want to stress because I think this is the most important point. Extreme wealth corrupts democracy by its very nature. Because when you have extreme wealth, that's synonymous with, that's analogous to extreme power. Yes. And... Especially in the system that we have here where the Supreme Court has basically ruled over a number of decades that money equals free speech. And so you could give unlimited amounts of money to super PACs and to political campaigns. And
0: And corporations are people.
1: Yeah. The results of that are you have a tiny number of people, corporate interests and billionaires, who control the system and rig the system. And there was a great Princeton study that came out probably eight years ago now, which found that There is zero correlation between what the American people want and the policies we end up getting. Yeah. But there's a very, very clear correlation between what the donor class and the billionaires and the corporations want and what we end up getting. So what you have is a system that's fundamentally unsustainable. And what you're going to do is breed all types of extremism because people can't stand the status quo. And so you're asking for a rise of the far right. You're asking for a rise of the far left. You think Bernie Sanders was radical? You ain't seen nothing yet if you think Bernie Sanders was some sort of radical. He was the solution. He was the compromise, as people say. You know, social democracy is the compromise. So they're playing with fire. They're moving deck chairs around on the Titanic. And these milquetoast tweaks around the edges, they're not going to do Dickie McGee's acts. And we're going to end up Right back in the same place or in a worse place, unless you have somebody who's actively hostile to capital like FDR.
0: Yeah. Well, and this actually is a pretty good segue into our guest who has a lot of thoughts about the way societies have been structured, the way they should be structured, what our particular society, what it breeds, and what it foments. Ultimately, I'm very excited to have Christopher Ryan on. He's the host of a podcast called Tandentially Speaking. He is a researcher. He's an author of uh, two books, Sex at Dawn, and also Civilized to Death. And with no further ado, here's Chris Ryan. Christopher Ryan, so great to see you. How are you doing, my friend?
2: I'm doing all right. How are you? Thanks for having me. Very good.
0: You're one of the people, Kyle and I, when we first started thinking about this podcast, you were top of our list to talk to just because um, your writing is fascinating. We've both seen you with Joe Rogan. I had the chance to come on your podcast. So really delighted to have you. Um, We both have a million questions we want to ask you about your work and your research. But I actually wanted to start with just how are you doing? How has this past year been for you?
2: Uh, the year's been great. I, I, I feel kind of bad in the sense that uh, my life was more or less set up um, for something like this. Um, I don't have kids. I don't have a job. Uh, so <laughs> I sort of feel uh, lucky in, in my lack of vulnerabilities to things. Um, but, yeah, the year's been good. And, and talking about guests, I just looked at your uh, previous guests. I, I'm kind of amazed to be on this list with Noam Chomsky and Andrew Yang and uh, Marion Williamson. So thank you very much for having me on.
1: Yeah, no, we, uh, like Crystal said, we actually, you were kind of ahead of them on the list. No disrespect to them, but, you know, I feel like <laughs> the, the topics that you explore Are kind of a unique intersection between politics and a lot of other stuff like sex that it's fascinating and interesting and not many other people have you know your level of expertise um so i know crystal wants to ask you you know some stuff about your history and your biography and whatnot but (coughs) i want to actually jump right into um your newest book civilized to death and uh i guess in in a broad sense i want to ask you this question what did hunter-gatherer societies get right that we get wrong
2: oh man that is a big question Uh, they got a lot right uh that we get wrong um you know one area that that we could talk about you know common interest between the three of us is politics for example hunter-gatherer politics is sort of 180 degrees different from the way we practice politics In the modern world. In a hunter-gatherer society, authority accrues to someone who is respected by the rest of the group. So you don't become a leader in a hunter-gatherer society by um, having a desire to be a leader. In fact, Having a desire to be a leader is a disqualifying characteristic of someone. Someone who tries to tell other people what to do is considered to be anywhere ranging from ridiculous to dangerous. Um, So, you know, our political leaders, you know, who demand all this attention, who thrive on power and ego, these people would be considered absurd in hunter gatherer societies and uh, prohibited from any having any sort of position of leadership. So that's one example. But you know, in civilized to death, I covered all sorts of areas, the way we raise children, uh, the way we approach what we call work, um, the way we approach death and the way we um, sort of help people through the dying process. Excuse me. so many diet, exercise, and maybe most crucially, um, community. Uh, A point that I made in the book is that more people live alone in the United States right now, um, a higher percentage and also absolute number, than have ever lived alone in the history of our species. Um, And that has dramatically negative effects on our mental and physical health. So, so many ways of the way we live in the modern world are out of alignment with how we evolved as a species, uh, both over millions of years, if we're looking at physiological issues, and hundreds of thousands of years if we're looking at more social dimensions.
0: I mean, the political implications of that are pretty obvious. Part of what you emphasize is in the hunter-gatherer societies, there's more of a sort of collectivist, like there's a, a lot of sharing. Everything is the property of everyone, essentially. Obviously, in modern society, it's much more focus on the individual, Focus on competition, especially in America, especially in the West. Um, is that because we're wired different? Like, where do those different preferences and structures and systems ultimately come from?
2: Well, I've argued that they come from uh, a sort of a reorganization of social, of human communities that uh, began with the advent of agriculture. Um, so there was a major shift from, as you describe, hunter-gatherer societies being based upon egalitarianism, sharing um, our religious belief uh, structure changed from a sort of animist, pantheist uh, view of the universe to a monotheistic, hierarchical understanding of the spiritual world, which is reflected, of course, in um, our sort of terrestrial existence. When we shifted to agricultural societies, women lost their parity with men uh, and became something closer to domesticated animals in our society. If you, you know, read the Old Testament, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, you know, I always thought that that was, and I think most people think that's about respecting marriage. But if you read that in context what you find is thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his ox, nor his house, nor his servants. So the wife is really just part of the neighbor's property. Um, so to sum it up, the major change is we shifted from a society that was based upon sharing and, and egalitarianism and consensus, um, and very small scale, of course, to A society structure that was based upon property and hierarchical coercive power and hoarding, as opposed to sharing, uh, with um, consequent lack of respect, loss of respect for women, uh, for other human beings, for other animals, for the earth itself. Um, And we see the consequences of that all around us, of course.
1: I sort of want to ask you uh, the inverse of the question I just asked before, which is, in your opinion, what do we get right that hunter-gatherer societies got wrong? And just to, you know, throw my own two cents in real quick, I would say like air conditioning and <laughs> heating and cable TV, but, <laughs> but in Podcast. your opinion, what do we get right that the hunter-gatherer societies got wrong, if anything?
2: That's a good question. I've probably done 50 interviews about this book, and you're the first person to ask me that one. That's that's excellent. Uh, what do we get right? So much of what we get right, I think, is, is an improvement upon 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, but when you look back 10 or 20,000 years ago, it becomes... Uh, a bit harder to nail anything down I kind of feel like in terms of quality of life uh, we took a big drop with the advent of agriculture in terms of nutrition and the social issues I mentioned earlier Um, and then we've been sort of working our way back up since then at least those of us living in affluent societies in privileged positions, you know, that which is not the average human being, of course, whereas when we're talking about hunter gatherers, because they're egalitarian, we're really talking about the average person, because there wasn't much difference there, there were um, no class differences, you know, obviously. Um, So I think, you know, it's a it's a complicated conversation to have. But uh, I think that Some of our technologies are um, fantastic and and should be respected. I think uh, birth control is, uh, I think, one of the most amazing technologies that we've come up with, but it's very underutilized uh, because of religious concerns and also uh, people tend to get very... Emotional when we talk about the advantages of having a lower human population. The, there's a, a bias toward growth, uh, both economically and in terms of population, that's, that is very hard to uh, confront, I think, for most people. Um, so I think there are some technologies. I think, you know, obviously podcasting is amazing, uh, very interesting independent media being able to speak directly to millions of people with no corporate intervention, I think is um, probably on a par with the printing press as far as, um, you know, implications for, for the future. Um, You know, and, and obviously, you know, I opened the book by talking about uh, my father's life being extended 15 years because he had a liver transplant, you know, that there are medical advances that are, quite miraculous and deserving of our respect. But uh, so many of the things that people consider to be advantages of civilization are really just Band-Aids on problems that were caused by civilization. So, <clears throat> you know, vaccines, for example, are, are in the news these days. Uh, and people often say to me like, oh, I, I wouldn't have wanted to live in prehistory. Everyone died from smallpox and tuberculosis. But in fact, smallpox, tuberculosis, influenza, uh, the worst scourges of humanity didn't enter human populations until agriculture because these are viruses that jumped over from domesticated animals and that spread due to um, high population density. So hunter-gatherers never had to deal with these issues. So vaccines would not have been an improvement on hunter-gatherer life. I think the primary... Um, <clears throat> the problem with hunter-gatherer life is infant mortality. Um, anywhere from 20 to 35% of hunter-gatherer children die before the age of 10. Um, so there's no getting around the fact that that's a, a major problem.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you have a very contrarian take because the standard issue narrative is life was nasty, brutish, and short, Right then since then it's been especially with the advent of settled agriculture it's just been progress and progress and progress and the story of human history is the story of ever increasing improvements to our lives to the quality of life i mean just look at us today could pick up our phone. We could have access to any information in the world. We could order any food we want to our doorstep. Again, this all comes from a great place of privilege. We can put this podcast out into the world to millions of people. So what's not to like about it? What's the problem?
2: Well, the problem is that that's a very imbalanced view of progress. It, it doesn't incorporate an understanding of any of the costs that have been paid. Um, you know, the the genocides, the slavery, the destruction of ecosystems, the quite uh, imminent uh, um, destruction of the entire planet in terms of being able to support human life. Uh, if we ignore the costs, you know, it, it's sort of the classic capitalist approach to things, externalize the costs, uh, socialize the costs and just concentrate on the profit. Well, that's not an accurate way to look at life. Um, so many of these technologies, let's talk about food, for example. People often say, oh my God, we have so much food. You know, we've, We live in a time of incredible abundance and we have, uh, we have to thank Archer Daniels Midland for you know, supporting the growing population. Well, what is this food? The food is causing diabetes. It's causing cancer. It's causing obesity. It's causing all sorts of problems among the people who have access to it. And we still have—I think it's three billion people going to bed hungry every day. So the distribution of that food is is a complete mess. Um, so, and and how nutritionally healthy is that food? So many of us are are. Uh, nutrient deprived, even though we are getting more than enough calories every day. So I think if you start to look at things in a more balanced way, every one of those issues that you raised is much more complicated than just, oh, here's a piece of evidence of how wonderful life is. We have, uh, you mentioned cell phones, or we have these phones, you can look at you know any information in the world. Yeah, but what are most people doing with their phones? They're looking at platforms that thrive, that profit on spreading panic and insecurity and unhappiness. And so we see in a spike in depression, suicide, uh, addictive behaviors, specifically in the first generation that grew up with access to that technology. So In all of these things, I think what we need to look at is, have these things actually made life better for the average person? And if the answer is no, then we have to look more closely at what are the motivations for these technological innovations? If they're not actually to make life better, then what are the motivations and who's actually winning at this game? So in in the book
1: you actually you make a really interesting point. Um, it's it's a it's a zoo comparison. So to paraphrase here, you know you say it, it's a pragmatic view that like well we're not just going to like snap our fingers and go back to a hunter gatherer society and you know you're you're perfectly clear about that. But um, if you are an animal in a zoo, you would prefer to be in the San Diego Zoo and not you know some random romanian zoo where it's just a bunch of cages and animals shoved in the cages and so my question is how exactly do we living in modern society get back in touch with this sort of hunter-gatherer nature that you're alluding to what specific solutions like i play golf for example i know you said about golf people like it because you're back in nature and you feel like more in touch with nature what are your solutions
2: yeah, I, I think there are a lot of steps that we can take. Um, obviously, I think the first step is to understand the animal that we are and where we came from uh, and why we are the way we are. So that's the the thread tying together both of the books I've written so far. Um, <clears throat> but once we've done that and we start to understand where our appetites come from, why certain things work and others don't, uh, we can integrate things into our lives that, you know, maybe small uh, details, maybe large structural details. Um, So for example, uh, I think we're living through a revolution right now where a lot of people are suddenly free to live where they wanna live because they can work remotely. Um, So people are are looking uh, around and saying, well, do I wanna live in a city that stresses me out all the time and I have to commute an hour each way to work every day? Or do I want to work from home and maybe live out in the country where my kids can play in the dirt and uh, have a much lower chance of having autoimmune disorders because they're exposed early in life to all sorts of pathogens in the dirt and nature. Um, So things are freeing up in a way that are allowing people to make adjustments. We can see it all over the place. We see it in Um, interest in paleo nutrition and, uh, you know, looking at how relationships uh, worked in in prehistory. We see it in exercise, you know, everything from CrossFit to paleo fitness. Um, I think we see a lot of people looking back in order to understand how to uh, calibrate their lives better. Um, Me personally, uh, I, we were talking before we went on air about uh, how I'm living in this tiny town in Colorado. Uh, sense of community, which is very important to our species, uh, is stronger in small towns, right? Neighbors take care of each other. Um, and actually, uh, a bunch of my closest friends are buying property in this little town, and we're helping each other build houses, uh, some of our friends have chickens and goats, so we get our eggs from them. Uh, some friends have kids and others don't, and so we can, you know, take care of their kids. They can take off, go camping for a weekend, and not worry about their kids. Some people have dogs and some don't. So we're trying to set up a little kind of tribal enclave in a way, um, and you know, some of the technological innovations we talked about earlier, sort of counterintuitively free us up um, to return to a more primordial social organization in some ways. I spend uh, three months or four months every year living in my van, uh, camping in Idaho and Montana. Um, So that's a return to a bit of a, a nomadic kind of life. I spend a lot of time sitting by fires, looking at the stars, jumping in rivers in the morning, uh, you know, lying in hammocks, which I I think are the first and still best human invention ever. So there are lots of innovations that that we can make. Um, I think the most important is um, cultivating community, though.
0: It's so true. And You know, our whole system is built around a conception of individualism and greed and that the only values that really count are like profit margin, stock market growth, GDP growth. It's that obsession with growth, like you say. And yet as you're talking, I mean, it sounds very, uh, and by the way, I relate very, I'm kind of like a, I'm kind of a hippie-ish person at heart, Kyle can attest to, and very like into being outside and hiking and camping and all that stuff is very much what I like to do in my spare time as well. But it also makes me think of, you know, in the 60s there was this whole counterculture movement, a lot of the same sort of, themes, ideas, instincts of the way that we're doing this thing in modern society is all wrong. We need to have a more collectivist view. We need to live in a different way. And most of the people that were part of that movement, eventually they sort of like grew out of it and went and became the suits that they hated at the time. And now they're like, you know, they're running the country and they're doing an even worse job than the people <laughs> before them are doing, right? So why do you think that is? Why did they get that sort of like instinct and idealism and desire to create a different reality and different way of living, how did that just get beaten out of them?
2: Well, I I think there are two um, aspects to that question. One is uh, the individual trajectory of particular people uh, that you may be referring to. And the other is what lasting impact, if any, did those movements have on American society or, or global society? Um, it's hard to talk about the first one because, you know, without talking about particular people, it, it, it's hard to know how to handle that. Uh, I think you're right that a lot of people who considered themselves to be uh, part of the alternative movement uh, gave it up. But I also think that a lot of people didn't give it up, um, and I think that a lot of people in any movement are just um, hangers-on. They're just along for the ride. And you know, if it had been 1938 Germany, they would have been brown shirts. You know, I I, I know a lot of people who consider themselves hippies who are. You know, they're not, they're not hippies if your idea of a hippie is a free thinker, inclusive, open-minded, you know, open to new ideas. Uh, there are a lot of sort of holier-than-thou hippies, just like there are in any other community. So I guess I question whether they were really ever alternative people um, or countercultural um, but I think as far as, you know, people say to me, oh, the 60s, you know, failed, you know, it was a, it was a, a failed experiment. And I say, wait a minute, uh, look at the things from the 60s that have changed our world and persist now, uh, you know, a, an environmental consciousness, uh, a sense that women have the right to equal political power, equal rights, uh, sexual freedom. Um, the idea that people should, you know, uh, be able to define themselves in terms of their sexuality, their gender, their, um, a, you know, an openness to alternative uh, approaches to life, animal rights, uh, there's so music. I mean, my God, we're still listening to the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones, and that's still the most uh, impactful popular music in most aspects of most levels of American society and, and world society. So I think that there's a, it's sort of a mistake to say that the sixties collapsed and went away. Uh, I think that you're right, that this is sort of a another wave that's coming in now. And hopefully uh, a lot of the mistakes that were made in the sixties, the sort of, you know, Timothy Leary hyperbole um, is being tempered now. Uh, I've been for 25 years or so involved with uh, an organization called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And um, Rick Doblin, who I've had on my podcast, who also would be great for you guys to talk to, really interesting dude. And a lot. his life's work is bringing uh, psychedelics back into the mainstream for uh, clinical use and research. Um, and uh, he's been extremely successful. It looks like MDMA therapy is going to be approved probably nationally within a year or two. Um, uh, their organization is behind a lot of the uh, legalization or decriminalization movements in Colorado and Oregon recently. Um, and they're doing fantastic work. So that's an example how, you know, now psychedelics are being. Uh, employed in a much more deliberate, intelligent, research based, um, careful way that is really doing a lot of good, helping uh, veterans suffering from PTSD, uh, uh, dealing with addiction, way, way more effective than any of the existing treatment protocols. So I I do think we've learned a lot from the 60s, and I hope you're right that this is a return to a lot of those impulses, but in a more informed, intelligent, experienced way.
1: So um, the sense I get from from your answers is that things that are crucially important for human beings, it's the sense of community. Um, perhaps more leisure time as opposed to traditional work time, uh, more friendships, maybe more travel. Uh, This question is actually pretty simple, but what societies exist today that embrace that mindset more than others? So, like, would the Scandinavians make the cut, like the Nordic countries?
2: Yeah, I I think in some ways they do, certainly in terms of um, political Equality for uh, women, uh, I think, in terms of support for women, you know, in Scandin- Scandinavian countries, um, you know, I think a year of, um, um, of leave, paid leave is standard uh, maternity or paternity. Um, you know, there's a lot. But the sort of... You know, social democrat approach to governing is closer to a hunter gatherer um, political philosophy uh, than the sort of rabid capitalism that we have in the United States, um, at least for individuals, not for corporations. And so I think that, yeah, those societies replicate that sort of egalitarianism and uh, uh, seek to minimize class differentials uh, and and hierarchical power. Um, I think that other societies like Spain, for example, where I live for uh, 15 years off and on, uh, have both uh, the political philosophy uh, less um, developed perhaps than in Scandinavian countries, but also there's, um, I don't know if, uh, if a country can have a personality, but there's a feeling of Spanish culture that is much less uh, ashamed of pleasure. I, I think this is a big problem in the United States that we have this puritanical uh, aversion to pleasure. Um, and in Spain, people sort of take it as a given that life is to be enjoyed. So, uh, you know, the two hour lunch is standard, the siesta, um, you know, get to it when you get to it. There, there's not this um, frenzy toward productivity and uh, subservience to corporate interests, hmm. Um So I think it's uh, that—that's an example that's really, you know, personal for me.
0: There's actually a lot there. I mean, you alluded earlier to this obsession with growth, and that ties into the climate catastrophe. It, it, you know, ties into unchecked capitalism. It ties into, you know, ever expanding populations. All of that. Where do you think that that mindset comes from?
2: Well. Uh, You know, cards on the table. This may sound kind of crazy, but the way I look at the modern world is basically you have the interests of human beings versus the interests of this artificial life form known as corporations. And I see corporations as living things. It's a form of life that is difficult for us to recognize, and yet we acknowledge it in our language. You know, Monsanto Monsanto thinks, you know, Monsanto says, like, Monsanto's not a living thing. How can it think or say anything? And yet, you know, we've granted personhood, legally, uh, even religious freedom somehow to corporations, um, and I feel like so much of what uh, torments humanity is a result of the fact that the interests of these superorganisms don't align with the interests of us. And uh, you know, it's almost like the interests of a school of salmon doesn't align with the individual salmon's interests. Um, so I don't want to get too into the weeds in terms of superorganisms and and all that business, although I do talk about it a bit in Civilized to Death. Um, but I think that that's the problem, that growth is in the interest of the superorganisms. You know, 100 or 500 years ago, that was the state that was, um, you know, whatever community needed to expand, because agriculture is inherently an expansive uh, growth demanding way of existing on the planet, because you have massive population growth in agricultural societies. And so in order to feed those growing societies, you need more land. And if you need more land, that means you're going to be pushing someone else off the land. So that creates the need for um, organized aggression, warfare, conquest. Um, So the ball just gets rolling and growth is at the heart of this particular type of social organization, um, you know, within which we're all living. So whether it's expressed as the growth of the state because it's raising armies and you know uh, conquering new lands, or it's expressed as growth of market share, growth of profit, et cetera, in a corporate sense. Um, but for individual humans, that growth is not really advantageous at all. And often it works against our quality of life. Mm.
1: Uh, Before, I got a bunch of questions that I want to ask you about Sex at Dawn, but before I get to that, I do want to go back to something you said earlier that uh, piqued my interest. You brought up death Mm -hmm. and the differences between the way hunter-gatherer societies view death and approach death versus how, in the modern day, we view and approach death. And um, I've always been of the personal belief, and it, it actually just occurred to me now, I never actually thought this through in detail by myself, but it just occurred to me now that... I actually do sort of live life as if death is not real and is not a thing. Like, I don't dwell on it. I don't think about it. I just sort of keep living and just hope that I can continue to keep living in perpetuity. And I feel like in some ways that's psychologically healthy because it just allows me to stay more in the moment and move forward. So what are the differences between the hunter-gatherer approach and the modern approach? And is my approach more in line with the hunter-gatherers or today's approach?
2: That's uh, interesting. I I think that, you know, one of the primary ironies of uh, this sort of conversation between hunter-gatherer life and and contemporary life is that hunter-gatherers have very few possessions and yet they approach life as if they were very wealthy, as if they have everything they could possibly need. Whereas we have many possessions and approach life as if we're deeply impoverished. Um, there's an essay called The Original Affluent Society by Marshall Salins, who was an anthropologist. Um, he published this essay, I think, in the early 70s. Um, and he, he was one of the first people to say, you know, hunter gatherers live as if they have it made. They have, you know, all this leisure time, very, at most maybe 20 hours a week doing what we would call work, um, although for them it's not work because they're not doing anything they don't want to be doing. Uh, they're hunting, they're fishing, they're basically camping, which is what we do for leisure. Um, they're hanging out, telling stories by the fire, you know, all this stuff that we do at summer camp, that's their lives. So it's hard to, you know, call it work. Um, And I think in our approach to life and death, there's something similar there, like listening to you describe your approach to life. It sounded like you were saying, you know, you have this um, like this assumption of abundance. And yet when you aren't thinking about death, when death isn't a presence in your consciousness, uh, it's much easier to waste your life. Uh, because you think it'll never run out. Um, Hunter-gatherers are much more aware of death. They're eating animals that they've killed pretty much every day. Um, Their understanding of the necessity of death in order to feed life is integral to their understanding, to their worldview. Um, And, you know, in our world, we're separated from death. So, um, you know, insistently, uh, we're separated from the death of of what we eat, we're separated from the deaths of uh, our neighbors and our family members. And, uh, you know, our exposure to death is a casket, um, hermetically sealed, Against what I don't know, uh, stainless steel, you know. Like, what are we, what are we doing? What, what is it? Who's being protected? Is the body being protected from us? Or are we being protected from the body? What's going on? Um, and I think that that um, inability or unwillingness to acknowledge the cycle of life, while it can create the kind of insulation that you're talking about. Uh, in your own experience, I think it it also can create a lot of danger because we're working under a false assumption that, that our life will never end, that we're immortal. Um, and I think that that fear of death expresses itself in many other ways. So, you know, getting back to what I said earlier about this sort of strange counterintuitive um, conflict between abundance and scarcity, uh, I feel like even though we don't really acknowledge death, we're thinking about it all the time, right? Uh, we're all obsessed right now with, um, you know, mass shootings and uh, the death of George Floyd. And it's, it's, you know, it's a constant presence for us in a sort of intellectual media driven way, um, but not in a visceral personal way. Um, so I don't know I think I think we're gonna we have to deal with death one way or another. It's kind of unavoidable and uh, I end every episode of my podcast. the theme song is uh, called Smoke Alarm by Carsi Blanton and the the chorus is uh, I don't want to give the end away, but you're gonna die one day. <laughs>
1: I don't like that. I'm going to live forever, but thank you anyway. <laughs> How is that reflected,
0: though? That different perspective in like the the rituals surrounding death in different hunter gatherer societies.
2: Um, yeah, I don't really know a lot about the the rituals uh, to the extent that there are any um, surrounding death. I think that you know each society probably looks at that uh, transition differently. Um, I, yeah, I don't think there's any sort of blanket comment that I could make about hunter-gatherers in general. I think they're much more accepting of death, obviously, because of, of its omnipresence in their lives. Um, but I, I, I do think that one important difference in the way hunter-gatherers experience death is, um, That when the end of life comes, it tends to come quickly, uh, as opposed to, you know, in our lives, the end can drag on for 15 or 20 years. Um, You know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, where people say, oh, the modern world is done, you know, modern medicine is such a great gift to humanity. And, uh, you know, we've doubled the human lifespan that's nonsense. Uh, anyone who actually studies these issues will tell you that homo sapiens typically live, if they uh, make it through childhood, typically live into their seventies or eighties. Any, anyone hunter gatherers, uh, typically live into their seventies and eighties. So we haven't doubled the human lifespan at all. Uh, Largely, what we've done is we've dr- drawn out the dying process. Um, so that's a dubious uh, accomplishment, uh, I think. Um, you know, I, I think this town I'm living in, we we're talking about bringing hunter-gatherer approaches to life into our own lives. This town I live in is the only place in North America that has a permit to conduct open air cremations. So if you're a resident here, when you die, if you request this, um, your body can be taken into the desert just outside of town. There's a pyre and um, and burned uh, in the morning. Uh, I attended a, one of these cremations a couple of years ago and is one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had Um, to see this person's body literally go up in smoke while her friends and family stood in a circle and spoke about her life for a couple of hours. And at the end of it, there was nothing left. It, It was a real ashes to ashes experience. And the profundity of her body being absolutely gone um, really moved me, and, and I think is something that you know is probably um, hunter gatherers experience very much. And there's not this illusion of permanence because of the casket and the gravesite and the tomb and the you know the the stone, the granite stone, and all that.
0: Yeah, you know this may be. Uh... Kind of transitional question because there are a lot of common themes between civilized to death and sex at dawn both of them as you said are rooted in this idea of like what are the conditions in which we evolved and in which human beings lived for most of the time that there have been human beings on the planet But one of the standard narratives that's used in sort of justification of the American system of capitalism is, look, you may not like it, but you got to grow up and realize that people are greedy. They're inherently selfish. And capitalism is the best system to make everything work that sort of trades on and uses that greed, transforms it into productivity and into progress. So talk to me about that. Is it Is it true that human beings are inherently greedy and jealous, or do you see different attributes that are sort of created out of the culture when you're in a very different society, like a hunter-gatherer society?
2: Yeah, I I, I think it's a little of both. I think that selfishness, uh, self-interest is uh, clearly innate in humans, as it is in, in every other social mammal. Uh, But I think that, and and that extends to jealousy. Uh, You know, uh, people often ask about jealousy in the context of of sex at dawn. So I think that the sort of acquisitiveness, hoarding behavior, possessiveness, um, proprietary approach to life, exists within us, and it applies both to uh, material objects, food, status, sexual partners across the board. Um, But I think that the fundamental difference is that some societies, um, including all hunter-gatherer societies, um, seek to minimize that impulse. there are specific mechanisms within these societies to control it, to try to educate it out of children. Um, we can talk about specifics if, if you're interested in that. Um, you know, it, it relates to what I was saying earlier about politics, right? If you're a selfish, power-hungry individual, you're excluded from any sort of leadership. You're considered ridiculous. People make jokes about you. Um... If uh, so, so these impulses exist, but they're minimized, tamped down, um, not encouraged at all. Whereas in our society, those impulses are encouraged. They're celebrated. They're uh, you know cultivated. In Sex at Dawn, we we wrote about uh, some popular you know media. Depictions of love, like the song "When a Man Loves a Woman," everyone knows this song. It's a classic. It's you know one of the hundred most popular songs of all time. But if you actually listen to the words, it's really disturbing. If a man loves a woman, he'll spend, give her his very last dime. He'll um, sleep out in the rain if she says that's the way it has to be. It's like, what are you talking about? That's uh, love? Are you kidding me? Um, you know, Every Breath You Take, this this Police or Sting song, you know, that's about a stalker. And yet we consider it to be a love song. Can't you see you belong to me? You know, these things in movies and songs, it's just, it just, um, you know, feeds these obsessions. Uh, and I think that... Uh, you know, So the answer to your question is, yes, these things exist naturally in us as a species, but they can be celebrated or they can be ridiculed.
1: I'm fascinated to hear that answer from you, because I have to admit, my assumption was that your view was more along the lines of human beings are inherently good and collectivist and they stress community and they're empathetic and all that stuff. But funny enough, you actually mirrored the exact view that I have, which is we're both, you know, we're both selfish and greedy and that's natural. And so we're part bad, but we're also part good. We have both of those things in our nature. And what you're saying is they emphasized in the hunter gatherer societies, the good parts and tried to minimize or downplay the bad parts. So I guess my question is sort of linked to that. Um, Is your argument in Sex at Dawn that human beings are naturally polyamorous or is your argument that human beings are sort of malleable and can adjust with the culture and so we have the potential to be polyamorous or monogamous depending on the current situation?
2: Yeah, you guys are asking really good questions. I, I, I really appreciate the, the nuance that, that you bring to this conversation. Um, I, I think that you're right. I, I agree that we are both, that we can go in many different directions. We're an incredibly adaptive species. Um, you know, we live in every environment on the planet. Uh, there, are, there are probably tens of thousands of us deep underground right now as we speak in minds all over. The, yeah, you know, they're, they're humans in outer space. We are without doubt uh, right up there with cockroaches and rats as far as our adaptability. Um, but I do think that there are some adaptations that are very costly for us, are difficult for us, and there are other adaptations that are more congruent with our nature, So I hope it doesn't seem like I'm avoiding the question, Um, but I do believe we can go in many different directions. But some of those directions feel right and others feel wrong. Um, You know, in in commenting on the previous question, you talked about how hunter-gatherer societies accentuated the good and maybe capitalism accentuates the bad. Well, why do we consider some of these to be good and bad? It's interesting that the good aligns with the approach taken by hunter-gatherers, even in our discussion here in you know, 21st century capitalism, um, and the bad aligns with uh, a more acquisitive approach. Um, it's almost as if our gut is telling us what's right and what's wrong, but sometimes we have to work against our gut. So related to sexuality, when you look at hunter-gatherer societies and you see that they share everything, that their society is organized around the principle of egalitarianism and um, community and sharing, and you see how uh, hunter-gatherers Take care of, each, of, of children without regard to whose children they are. Uh, they are sharing food. They're sharing access to medical care. They're uh, living with people that they've known most, if not all, of their lives. So there's a very deep uh, degree of commonality and intimacy among these societies. And so it struck me as strange that the sort of standard understanding of human sexual evolution is that in this one area of our lives, we would have been extremely proprietary, while every other part of our lives would have been based upon a totally different philosophy. And uh, the more I looked into it, the more I saw that... uh, um, you know our bodies, uh, our uh, sexual responses, our, our psychosexual responses to um, relationships and pornography and what have you, all align with a species that uh, is sexually cooperative and which raises children together, not in nuclear families. The nuclear family, which is thought to, you know, have originated, tens of thousands of years ago is actually a very recent innovation. So you know, to answer your question, I think we can go either way. I, I often say that uh, monogamy is like vegetarianism. It can be ethically fantastic. It can be good for society. It can be, um, it can be a, a great approach to life. But just because you've decided to be a vegetarian doesn't mean bacon suddenly stops smelling good.
0: (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. You know, the part of your... Argument, and I, I, believe you know your the case and the research and the evidence that you produce. It all makes sense to me, and you've obviously done the work, done the research, understand it really deeply. The part of it that I just viscerally struggle with the most is this idea that jealousy is kind of culturally created, that it's not an inherent, innate human trait. Because I just think about it, like you know, I do consider myself to be an open-minded free-thinking person. I don't judge anybody for anything that they're doing that's not hurting another person. Um, But it's hard for me to imagine not feeling jealous in a polyamorous situation. Um, So what is your, you know, what's the evidence that basically that wasn't really a problem when society was structured a different way and how do you think about that piece?
2: Um, Well, You know, just to to question the premise a little bit here, I wouldn't say that jealousy is a totally culturally created phenomenon. I would say that the impulse does exist within us, the impulse toward possessiveness and and a proprietary relationship to other people. Um, You know, but as I was alluding to earlier, I think that some societies nourish that Uh, and consider it to be admirable, uh, and other societies play it down and consider it to be kind of unfortunate or ridiculous. Um, And so in Sex at Dawn, we talked about uh, many examples of societies uh, in the latter group that play it down and minimize it. Um, But, you know, that's not to say that it... Is totally eliminated in those societies. Uh, even in these groups that we um, cite in *Sex at Dawn*, men sometimes fight over women, and sometimes it leads to to death. Um, so clearly, it continues to be an issue even in societies that play it down. But I would say that, you know, if you're living in a society in which everything is shared, and you know everyone, you've known everyone your whole life, and you grew up as a child with many different adults who loved you, not just your mother and your father, uh, as we do. So your, your psychology is built around an assumption of love and care and protection and safety, as opposed to a precarious all-my-eggs-are-in-one-basket kind of thing uh, that that we experience, um, you might have a very different feeling about love and sex. Uh, You might look at that as being something that exists in abundance rather than something that is um, coming from only one source And that one source can't be lost because, my God, if I lose this person, I lose everything. Uh, I have no one who's going to help me with these kids. I have no one who's going to help me pay the bills. I'll be totally alone and lost forever, which is what we face now. So it's a very different context, right? Um, You know, a relationship can run its course in a hunter-gatherer society, and you don't lose the person because they're still part of your group of 50 to 100 people traveling around together. Uh, So, you know, it's not an all or nothing proposition. This relationship ends and I'll never see you again. And, you know, we'll call the lawyers and and get into divorce proceedings. It's more, the things can happen more fluidly and, um, you know, relaxedly, if that's a word.
1: So um, when you look at the evidence for monogamy and marriage as it currently exists failing, I actually do think it's a pretty powerful case. Basically, 50% of marriages end in divorce, and that may indeed say something about monogamy. Um, but my assumption, if we were to live in a polyamorous society, and this is just my gut feeling, I have no evidence to back this up, but I would assume that about 50% of the people in a polyamorous society might feel like, I don't wanna fuck everybody in the group, I just wanna have one person that I fuck. <laughs> so is that is that a crazy assumption on my part? Because I feel like basically my, my default assumption is that human sexuality is complicated and messy no pun or joke intended with Messi, but like it's complicated. And so I feel like whatever sort of box you try to put us in by crafting society to be one way, there's going to be a natural like rebellion against that. And some people are not going to like it.
2: Oh, I agree. <clears throat> I agree. And also, if we're using the word polyamory, um, uh, which is a very specific kind of relationship configuration. Um, You know, I tend to think of uh, ethical non-monogamy as is the term that I tend to use because it it seems it's more inclusive uh, of very casual relationships, for example. You might have um, a sexual partner that you don't wanna live with. You don't wanna, you know, get into a deep relationship with. It's more of a sexual erotic friendship, you know, Uh, whereas that doesn't really uh, fit into the polyamorous rubric as I understand it. Um, But certainly, I think that, you know, not everyone in hunter-gatherer societies had or has multiple uh, sexual relationships going on all the time. Um, Like everything else, there's great variability between individuals and between people at different times of their lives, right? Uh, You know, uh, there's... there's. laboratory, experimental, and anecdotal evidence that seems to suggest that women's sexual appetite um, throughout their lifetime uh, peaks at a different time than men's. So, you know, there there are variabilities uh, that way as well. Um, But I do think that even if we don't want to have multiple sexual relationships, um, I think men in particular are very uh, oriented toward novelty in our sexual appetites. Uh, I, w- I remember I was on a TV show a long time ago right after Sexoton came out and you know, we had done this this interview and it's always difficult doing these interviews because sometimes I feel like the person asking the question um, is thinking about their own, situation and and so there's some tension around that but anyway the the interview ended and the guy said okay uh well that was really interesting but um i gotta tell you my wife is fantastic i i would never want to be with anyone else and i said that's great um do you do you look at porn and he said well yeah i said do you always look at the same porn he said no i said do you look at different women all the time? He said, yeah. I said, well, there you go. I mean, that's the appetite. How you choose to live your life is your business. I'm not even talking about how people choose to live their lives. I'm talking about what is the nature of the appetite that we have as a particular species uh, and what is the evidence for that. So, yeah, it's a big distinction between, you know, what uh, is our orientation as a species versus what do we choose to do with that?
0: Right. Right. So, um, one thing I was thinking about is like, for me, the fairy tale is appealing. You know, the, you find the soulmate you're with that person, you love them deeply. It's both totally fulfilling sexually and totally fulfilling emotionally. And you get all of that from that one person for life. And obviously that is appealing to a lot of people. I mean, that's why the fairy tale exists. That's why, and I'm referring to it sort of derisively as as a fairy tale, even though I personally sort of believe in it. Um, But it obviously has a lot of appeal to people, which is why that sort of standard model and narrative has persisted for so long in our society. Is there something sort of innate that makes that idea and notion appealing or is that more culturally driven?
2: Yeah, we're back to the chicken and egg situation with that. I mean, I think to some extent, maybe the fairy tale appeals to something innate, although it would be hard to really think that through. Um, I think a lot of the reason it appeals to us is because we've grown up with that fairy tale, you know? Um, But I don't mean to... To dismiss it, um, th- my parents met in their late teens and, um, uh, you know, were married uh, all the way through and were happy. And as far as I know, uh, only were with each other. Um, and uh, I grew up in that security and that uh, that love that they had for each other. So the last thing I would want to do is be dismissive of that or, or devalue it. Um, you know, but I, I think it's very, very hard for people to do that. And even in the best situations, I think it's unrealistic given the nature of our species. It's unrealistic to think that you will never be physically, sexually attracted to anyone other than your partner. And one of the reasons um, that I wanted to write Sex at Dawn was that I think so many people are suffering under the weight of that fairy tale. I think so many people feel that they're failing because they find themselves attracted to someone other than their partner. And so because of that fairy tale, uh, which by the way, extends into the psychotherapeutic community uh, in which if you're attracted to someone other than your partner, there's something wrong with your marriage. There's something wrong with your partner. There's something wrong with you. I think that's nonsense. And so many people are, um, carrying a, a horrible burden of failure uh, for no good reason, uh, simply because they don't have an accurate understanding of what sort of animal we are. So as I said, it, it's like you know vegetarians who walk by a barbecue and, and their body reacts to it and they feel like, oh my God, I'm a fraud. You're not a fraud. You're an omnivore who has chosen to live as an herbivore. You're not a fraud. Of course that's going to be difficult. Of course you're going to have appetites uh, that are inconvenient or, or or make you uncomfortable, but they shouldn't be held up as evidence of your failure. It's not failure at all. It's just the sign of a, a, an animal that's living somewhat out of alignment with its natural appetites.
1: It's really interesting to hear that perspective because I never thought of it like that. I always just sort of assumed that um anybody who had some sort of self-hatred in that scenario you just described that it's more performative like oh i am so mad at myself for being attracted to somebody else and not my wife you know what i mean (laughs) like but but maybe that's just my own bias because it just you're right i mean people could be raised in situations where that's really beaten to their head where that like this is how you have to feel and if you deviate from that then that's a problem so again i think um to to touch on what crystal just said I do think that you know the problems with monogamy and marriage are, are sort of um, clear to see. What I would say is when there are multiple partners, in I'll use your terminology, ethical non-monogamy, when there are multiple sexual partners, would, in, wouldn't there be like a very rigid hierarchy? You know what I mean? Like, wouldn't there be like, well, that one's my favorite. Cause she bugs me the least and is the coolest to talk to. That one's really fucking annoying, and I really don't want her around for anything other than just sex and then get the fuck out. This one's kind of in the middle. You know what I mean? Like so. In other words, can it also just become a massive fucking headache where you're just like, Jesus Christ, let me let me reduce the six I'm with to one? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I, uh, that could happen, sure. Um, you know, but don't forget. You know, I, I like how how your paradigm is very male centric uh but you know those women also have their own lives and their own hierarchies. so you know where do you fit into <laughs> theirs don't be ridiculous
0: One, <laughs> <laughs> i actually wanted to ask you though a little bit about male, female differences. You alluded to one of them. You said you think men in particular like novelty in their sexual appetites. And there's a lot of standard narrative that I think you um, debunk in Sex at Dawn where men and women are pitted as in this sort of like evolutionary struggle against each other what the woman wants and this is the standard narrative and you can tell me all the ways that this is wrong but the woman wants the guy who's gonna be there it's easier for her not to stray maybe she'll find another sexy partner you know right at the right time but she's gonna kind of keep it secret but what she's really interested in is the dude who's gonna provide and be there for the long term the guy, his interest is just to be with anyone, anytime, anywhere, with the ultimate end goal, goal for both being producing the most offspring as possible. And so all of our, from that sort of narrative flows all of our ideas about what's natural in human sexuality. Um, what does that narrative get wrong and what are the actual differences between male and female sexuality?
2: Oh, my God. What does it get wrong? <clears throat> Basically everything, um, because it's it's premised upon the nuclear family <clears throat> having uh, existed in prehistory, right? so the the woman who wants the man who's gonna be the provider, who's going to help her raise the kids, who's gonna um, you know, bring her meat and protection, and so on and so forth that presumes this nuclear family unit as the sort of primordial uh, atomic structure of human social organization. Whereas if you talk to anthropologists who study hunter gatherers, what you find is that that's not actually how hunter gatherers organize themselves socially. As I said earlier, um, you know, there's a great deal of evidence for, alloparenting in other words uh, adults taking care of children without regard to who the mother and father necessarily are uh, sarah hurdy has has written great books and essays about this um, she's probably the the leading expert on alloparenting in anthropology um, so the necessity of the woman for one man who's going to provide those resources, um, that that's just not r- reality in hunter-gatherer societies because that woman is being supported by the group. She's being, uh, you know, in a society where food is shared, you don't need one guy to bring you food. Uh, And if you even think about it, sort of do a thought experiment, let's say we've got, you know, 50 people living together, the men go out hunting, some of them, uh, some are hanging around, some of the women are gathering roots and, and insects and rodents and fruits and seeds. Uh, At the end of the day, the men come back. Some of the men uh, shot a monkey or uh, an impala or something. Now, imagine if that man who shot the impala comes back and says, okay, well, this impala is for my woman and my kids. And the rest of you, you know, sitting 10 feet away uh, around the same fire, you don't get any. Sorry, too bad for you. You got to get your own husband to go shoot an impala. Well, you know, that's not going to work. Um, and that's why hunter-gatherers, as we've established, are fiercely egalitarian and food is shared. In fact, there are many sort of elaborate mechanisms uh, to assure that food, particularly meat, is shared equitably. And in fact, the hunter uh, gets the least desired por- uh parts of the of the animal. Um, and there are we go through this in, in Sexodon and Civilized to Death. You know, men share their arrows, for example, and the credit for the kill is given to the man whose arrow is in the animal. That man may not have even gone hunting that day. So uh, this assumption of you know that a woman needs one man to take care of the kids, to bring the food, to protect her that's nonsense. That, that just doesn't stand up to any kind of observation of how hunter gatherers actually live. Um, so I forget what the second part of your question was.
0: Well, the, the, what, the reality of male and female sexual differences, Oh,
2: if it's right, not the standard right. narrative. Yeah, well, there, there are interesting studies done on this. Um, there does seem to be, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, increased appetite for novelty and sexual partners in males as opposed to females. And we see this sort of across mammals generally. Um, And that could uh, go back to the sort of, um, you know, basic difference between male and female sexual anatomy, the fact that, you know, women uh, are uh, at much greater risk uh, being pregnant and, uh, you know, breastfeeding a child. And so they're, they're, there's more selectivity possibly in, in terms of who she wants to risk getting pregnant by. Um, but then there, there's other research that sort of suggests it might not be that simple. Um, you know, in non-human primates... Novelty is extremely important to females. So if you introduce a new male into a group of macaques, for example, uh, all the females will, who are in, in estrus, who are ovulating, will want to have sex with that male. doesn't matter if he's smaller, less healthy, uh, lower status. His novelty is uh, a draw to them. And then there's research that was done um, uh, in, I think in Montreal, maybe it was McGill, but I I may be getting that wrong. Quite interesting research where women uh, and men, gay and straight were shown uh, different photographs and videos ranging from uh, gay male porn to lesbian porn, to um, just an attractive man walking down the beach, an attractive woman walking down the beach, and also um, bonobos having sex. Uh, Bonobos are like chimpanzees, they look like chimpanzees, and they're very closely related to humans. And when the the people watching these different uh, stimuli were hooked up to a machine that measured their physiological response, um genital blood flow uh specifically and then they were also asked to indicate on a dial how turned on they were by these different things and the responses were very interesting because uh in terms of the dial everyone responded as you would expect so the straight men were not turned on by the gay male porn they were somewhat turned on by the lesbian porn they were much more turned on by the straight porn and you know, not turned on by the guy walking down the beach anyway. So everything aligned uh, the way you would expect. Um, and the women, the straight women, indicated what you would expect. But the difference is that the straight women, physiologically, were turned on by everything. Hmm. Whereas everyone else, their physiological response aligned with their conscious response. The heterosexual women, their physiological response was every one of those scenarios turned them on, even though consciously they weren't aware of it.
0: It's that includes? Didn't you say one of the things was bonobo sex? They were turned yeah. on by that too.
1: <laughs> yeah, we need to get There'll these more broads under control. There's no is... porn
0: out there in the marketplace. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> this is unacceptable. We need to get these women under control. Um, <laughs> Chastity
0: belts all around.
1: So, uh, yeah. I agree. And Burkus. Uh, so, my final question is it's kind of a broad question. When I, I sort of believed and bought into this notion not just for the gay community, which is when it sort of rose to prominence, but the idea of born this way, I sort of felt like that's that was the case for all types of sexuality, whether you're gay or straight or bi or whatever, fill in the blank. Um, but then somebody introduced me to this other idea, and it may have been you, although I'm not sure you could tell me right or wrong, but it may, may have been you when you were on Rogan one time or it may have been some other uh, sexual researcher, but it's this idea that... Actually, you're not. it's not really born that way. What happens is that in, like, early childhood, in a very developmental stage, you create this sort of sexual map. And without even realizing it, you're influenced by your environment and from, from cultural forces. And when you think about it, like, I remember there was a time in, like, the 1990s when seemingly everybody was into these, like, giant fake boobs that women had. And then you fast forward to, like, the 2010s and suddenly all guys are into these, like giant asses, and it just seems like, almost like the sexual stuff was also trendy as well, like there were things that came in style and out of style. So anyway, which of those theories, or is it some other theory, do you think is more accurate?
2: Uh, This is an opportunity to sort of tie together your question and Crystal's last question, because I think there's uh, a difference between men and women in, in this. Almost all fetishists are men. Uh, you would have to look a long time before you found a woman who said, uh, you know, I can only get off if the dude is wearing latex or has a you know, really big ass or, you know, I, I can't be with a man who doesn't have hair on his back. You know, it's like, that's not a thing for women. Um, and there, so the research into fetishes suggests that in male sexual development, there's a window uh, where the young the boy is extremely impressionable and can make associations between any kind of random thing and sexual pleasure and that that association will persist for the rest of his life. whereas women don't seem to have such a window. Women, uh, are much more capable of adjusting to whatever different situation arises and finding it erotically stimulating, whereas men get this sort of fixed thing. Um, In men, in boys, it seems to happen somewhere between five and 10 years of age. Um, So I I think it's very, uh, there's sort of a dual thing happening there where um, men are born a certain way and yet there's also this developmental stamp on the wax when it's warm enough to take the impression, and then the wax cools, and that's the impression for the rest of your life. And um, you know, so I I think it's I, I've been careful about talking about this publicly because it it's the kind of thing that can be misused. Um, to deny uh, that people have innate sexual appetites or proclivities or gender orientations, Uh, and and I'm not saying that at all, but I do think that there are men, um, a subgroup of of men who are innately straight, of course, on a continuum like the rest of us, but innately uh, straight, And yet they have an experience between, you know, in that window of of malleability with another boy or a a man. And they experience pleasure in that uh, moment. And then for the rest of their lives, they kind of have a kink that expresses itself as a sexual attraction to men in a very specific way, a very specific type of man, uh, very specific situation. And so, because we have a, an oversimplified understanding of sexuality and sexual orientation and sexual development, we don't really have a place for these men. I talked about this on Rogan and I got dozens of emails from men saying, my God, this is the first time I've ever heard anyone describe me because, yeah, I'm married to a woman. I love her. I'm attracted to her. I love women. I love women's bodies. But every once in a while, I really want to have this particular kind of connection with a man. And, um, you know, so I think that that it's sort of that binary thing with men, whereas women uh, and and females, uh, bonobos and chimps to some extent, but very much bonobos are very comfortable, um, sort of innately uh, in sexual relationships with men or women. And it's a much more fluid um, kind of thing. Mm. That's
0: interesting. So to, to finish that thought, I have several other questions for you. Um, in hunter gatherer societies, what do we see in terms of same sex relationships?
2: That's that's an excellent question, and it's one of the things I wish there was more information about. But unfortunately, you know, until very, very recently, that's not the kind of thing that anthropologists would have been writing about. Um, it, it just, you know, it's it would have been considered not a legitimate area of research in anthropological um, study. So there really isn't much information, um, academic information around that. And, you know, first uh, contact uh, accounts and uh, are, are largely written by missionaries, Jesuits, who are not going to, you know, <laughs> include that in their accounts generally. Um, so the amount of reliable data is quite low. Um, We do know that in North American uh, Native societies, uh, most of them included uh, categories um, that are now called two-spirited ones, meaning um, someone who may be in one body but has the spirit of both male and female, or is in a male body but has the spirit of a female. And in those societies, generally, that person was expected to um, take the role of the spirit. So if you have a man, a male body, but you have the spirit of a female, you would be with the women and you would be considered a woman. The, the body was very much a secondary consideration. Um, so, you know, it's complicated because... Our understanding of homosexuality or uh, same sex relationships is very much culturally defined. And, you know, we might look at a society like what I'm describing, the Lakota, for example, that had this uh, two spirited category. And we say, oh, look, there's a man who's dressing like a woman, so a transvestite, I guess, who's married to a man. Well, do we call that? A same-sex relationship because they don't. They see it as a female spirit that happens to be in a man's body uh, with a man, a male spirit. So it's homosexuality is a very complicated thing to talk about when you get outside of your own cultural definitions. Um, there's a, a tribe that we wrote about in Papua New Guinea. For example, that believes that um, semen contains the essence of masculinity, and so the boys who are most eager to be fierce warriors and great hunters, and you know, really embracing this whole macho uh, approach to life will make sure that they ingest as much semen as they possibly can so that they'll be the fiercest warriors. Now, we look at that, it would do, you know, is that homosexuality or is that hyper masculinity? It's uh, very difficult to nail these things down.
0: Um, and then what do we know about the differences between male and female pleasure?
2: Ah, what do we know? Not enough, (laughs) certainly. Um, What do we, the differences between male and female pleasure? I I don't know, can you get into more detail in the question? Yeah, just
0: like the experience, the, the experience of the orgasm for men versus women. Huh. And obviously well, you have the, the physiological difference yeah, of like, a man can only have the orgasm once. Yeah. Usually Women a guy, guy is multiple.
1: like one and done and a woman can go over and over and over. But a guy there, needs a break of like at least 10 minutes. Is you know, there a maybe difference maybe in like
0: the experience of it? I mean, I'm sure that's a very hard thing to study, but it's something I've always been curious about.
2: Yeah. You know, of course my expertise only extends to <laughs> you know my own experience. Um, uh but uh yeah, that one of the conundrums that that um fueled the research that we did in sex at dawn is if women are less interested in sex than men and uh, less sort of erotic by nature, which is what uh you know. American society happens to believe at the moment but by the way 200 years ago there's a totally different uh view in uh in Britain um if if women are the least the less sexual uh less erotic gender then why is it that women are capable of multiple orgasms and men aren't that doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, and also, why is it that, you know, as Kyle said, uh, men's interest lasts until they have an orgasm, which, you know, often uh, statistically is about, I think, five to seven minutes uh, on average in the United States? I don't know States. what you're talking about, bro. <laughs> you don't make no it past big deal, three, or anything. right? right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, you know, women like after uh, 10 minutes, they, they're like, let's come on. Where, where are you going? What happened? You know, we're just getting started. Um, so it's it's interesting how women's sexual response suggests uh, that they are, in fact, a, a more sexual, uh, more interested, more uh, capable of um, extended sexual behavior and we see this in uh, bonobos which uh for people who don't know we keep mentioning bonobos um bonobos and chimpanzees are equidistant from humans both extremely closely related to us in terms of dna last common ancestor um you know i i, I like to say that the as an illustration we are more closely related to bonobos and chimps than an Indian elephant is to an African elephant. So we're, you know, scientifically speaking, we're very, very closely related. Um, And bonobos are a female dominant species and very sexual. uh, um, Franz Duvall, one of the great primatologists who studied bonobos and chimps said that chimps use violence to get sex and bonobos use sex to avoid violence. Um, No bonobo has ever been seen to murder another bonobo. There's no bonobo war. There's no bonobo infanticide. They're extremely chilled out erotic primates. Um, And they are equidistant to us as chimps. So anytime you're hearing about the primate origins of war, the primate origins of rape, et cetera, keep in mind that there is an equally related uh, primate that has no war, no rape, no murder. Um, So there's a hopeful note there to to work with. Sounds like they need some Jesus, bro.
0: You talk about in the book how things may have been totally different if we had studied bonobos first and thought of them as our closest cousins before we got obsessed with the champs, which I think is, is a fascinating point. I guess my last question for you is, like, what do you recommend that we do with this information? Because the reality is, on the one hand, we have these innate desires, passions, appetites, And we're evolved in a certain set of circumstances over many, many more years in prehistory than we've spent in modern civilization. So we're evolved in these hunter-gatherer societies to have these certain innate needs, wants, desires, etc. However, we live in modern society and we are jealous and we are greedy because that's the structure that's around us. So. How, like, what do you recommend we do with this information, either personally or as a society?
2: Um, <clears throat> what I recommend is, first of all, that we adjust our understanding of what sort of animal we are <clears throat> so that we will give ourselves and the people around us some slack uh, when we don't live up to our ideals. Um, because we understand that those ideals are out of alignment with our innate predispositions. Um, So, you know, talking about sexuality, uh, you know, I think, as I mentioned earlier, so many people are living under uh, the burden of unrealistic expectations. If you find yourself attracted to your tennis coach, uh, that doesn't mean you don't love your husband. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your marriage. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It's no big deal. You're an animal and you're responding. It could be you're responding to information in the odor of his body uh, that your body is telling you biologically, this would be a good person for you to have a baby with. <clears throat> we didn't even we haven't talked about that, but that's some, a really interesting area of research that shows that our attraction to people uh, happens on a molecular level, and really uh, is is not amenable to conscious control. Uh, t- talking about female pleasure, there's evidence that women's orgasm is a way to preference the sperm of the man you're having sex with at that time uh, over the sperm of other men that you may have had sex with previous to this guy or after this guy. So even if a, a woman has sex with multiple different men when she's ovulating, if she has an orgasm with a particular man that's, that creates an atmosphere within her body. It changes the pH of her vagina. There are muscle spasms that help uh, pull this particular man's sperm up toward the ovum. There are all sorts of physiological things that are happening associated with her orgasm that help her body choose uh, particular sperm cells. Um, you know, So there's all sorts of things happening that we're not even aware of. So the first thing I I hope people do with this information is readjust their sense of who they are, what they are, where these things come from and cut themselves some slack and cut each other some slack. And instead of being threatened by the fact that your partner finds other people attractive, celebrate it, enjoy it, share it together. Uh, instead of seeing it as a threat, see it as a feature, uh, something that you can um, integrate into your relationship and into your intimacy. Because otherwise, what you're doing is you're forcing each other to lie. You're forcing each other to pretend that these things don't exist. And they do. Uh, And it's not your fault. And it's not an indication of a problem. So as far as sexuality, I think that's Uh, what I would suggest people do and to the extent that it's possible and this depends on people's personal situations integrate these things into your life whether it's um, you know an acknowledgement of of sexual appetite or it's uh, spending time in nature moving back toward civilized to death and and those discussions uh, jumping in cold water you know, sort of this Wim Hof uh, craze that's happening around the world. There's a reason our body reacts well to that. Our bodies have been jumping into cold water for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, spend time looking at the stars rather than your phone. Um, you know, all these things, uh, fasting, you know, th- this is also a replication of hunter gatherer uh, life, intermittent fasting. So there's so many areas of our lives that we can bring um, facets of hunter-gatherer existence into the modern world and into our our personal lives that will be very beneficial for us, for the planet, and for each other.
0: Christopher Ryan, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. Um, a lot that is very thought-provoking and eye-opening and challenging and interesting and all of that. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you, guys. This This has been a really enjoyable conversation for me.
1: So that was Chris Ryan. Um, Really, really interesting guy. Like you said, uh, this is a guy who we really thought about having on the show, you know, from the very beginning. Because he's the exact, he fits the exact mold that we're looking for. We don't want to do 100% politics all the time. Um, We want to switch it up a little bit to other things that we're interested in. And he's like the intersection of everything that we're interested in. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: well, it comes together like... Clearly, the things he's talking about, both in Civilized to Death and Sex at Dawn, and like, I mean, it's a, fundamentally about the way humans organize themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what politics is. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of bursts some of the standard narratives that underpin our political and economic system of like humans are inherently greedy and not only are they inherently greedy but that's what drives them and that's the only value like there are no countervailing values or um, emotions to balance that he sort of busts that myth and says look I mean that's there. Yes, that is an innate part of human nature, but it actually has more to do with how you organize society and what you encourage that brings out those pieces. So it's not that hunter-gatherers are better people or have more innately good qualities. It's that in that setting, what is actually the smartest and most beneficial strategy is sharing, is being sort of altruistic and being collectivist because that's the you you have to all work together and share in order to survive and if you don't have that insurance policy then you're kind of shit out of luck and so that's what it comes down of whereas in our society it's all about my property my things this you know competition and hoarding and and endless growth and so that sort of foregrounds the, the greed and the jealousy and those qualities that are innate in humans too.
1: Yeah. um, So it's interesting because my interpretation of what he believed versus what he actually believed were very different. Mm. I sort of assumed he had some standard left wing um, views about human behavior and human nature. And I was just wrong about that, because when you hear him speak at length about what his views are, his views and my views were actually remarkably similar, way uh, closer than I thought they would be. So basically to sum that up for everybody and to break that down... um, generally speaking and these are generalities this isn't you know it's not a perfect correlation but generally speaking left-wingers tend to believe that humans are more innately good Mm -hmm. they're more innately good uh we're collective by our nature we're communal by our nature we're empathetic we look out for people when times get bad that's generally the left-wing view another part of that is that usually culture shapes you more nurture shapes you more than nature that's mm-hmm. another very common left-wing view. And if you think about it, it's a very, it is a very convenient view for leftists because that then the takeaway from that is, well, if culture shapes us, then as long as we create the right culture, human beings are infinitely malleable and they can basically become whatever we want them to be. Now, the right-wing view is – so you sort of alluded to it a little bit there. We're greedy by nature. We're uh, selfish by nature. We're – Narcissistic. We don't really care much about the collective or the community. We care way more about the individual, and we're really, n- nature drives us a lot more than nurture. So, you know, my thought about his work is that he was heavy on the side of it's all about the collective, bro, and the community. And when you hear him talk at length, he, that's actually not what he believes. He very clearly said, no, I think both of those things are part of human nature. In other words, you know, we are both selfish and greedy, and also collective and communal and empathetic. And to hear him explain that, I was surprised, because, again, my view of his work was that he's more of that uh, left-wing belief, but his belief is actually very uh, complicated, and it's it, it, exactly what I happen to believe on this issue. So, um, as soon as you understand where he's coming from with his view on human nature, I do, I do that does make the rest of his work a lot more palatable, palatable to me, mm-hmm. because he's not He's not like advocating everybody get in, uh, you know, non monogamous ethical relationships.
0: Or that we return
1: to hunter gatherer societies. Or that we return to hunter gatherer societies. But
0: they're just, there are literally too many people
1: to yes, even do yes. that now. So like, he's just sort of describing what it was like and what we could potentially learn from hunter gatherer societies and, you know, maybe also, why we're so miserable in our current state of affairs.
0: Yeah. And I also liked how it was like just give yourself and the people around you a break. Like, yeah. just mm-hmm. stop lying to each other, basically, about the way that we're actually well, wired,
1: you but, know? but it is tougher to live those values than say that. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to be like, just forgive. But, you know, if this somebody's married to somebody and it's like they come came home like, I just had an orgy with four other people, it's a lot harder to be like, totally cool, bro. You're going to be like, fuck you. Well, Get the fuck out of here. That's
0: where there's the tension between, like this is the reality of the society that we live in. Like, we don't live in a hunter-gatherer society where everything is collectivist and you've been raised that way and you didn't just have this nuclear family. Like, that's not the conditions that we were raised into. So, yeah, you're right. I th- but I do like that just, you know, it's not a utopian idea to just sort of cut each other some slack. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting that he said, which I hadn't ever thought of things in quite these terms, is that he sees a lot of the problems in our society as basically like the interests of the individual humans coming into conflict with the interests of these corporate superstructures, which increasingly dominate everything. And thats they're the ones who really benefit from the endless growth, the obsession with GDP, the obsession with productivity, the obsession with the stock market. It's not the human beings individually within the society that benefit. It's these corporate superstructures. And um, I just hadn't quite thought of things in those terms but I thought it was a very fascinating
1: frame. It's interesting that you hadn't thought of it like that because a lot of the work that you do on Rising is in that vein. For it, sure.
0: Yeah. and yeah. the no, vein man, that corporations
1: like... rule everything yeah. and we're sort of, you know, like bowing at the altar of corporatism, you know. So I'm surprised that you hadn't thought of it that way because when he brought that up, I thought this is where his politics intersect with our with politics. For sure. Like there's definitely not a perfect overlap. Like there are plenty of areas where there would be disagreement between your philosophy and his philosophy or my philosophy and his philosophy. But that's definitely the intersection. The intersection is we're not doing it right now. Why are we not doing it right now? And he's saying one of the main reasons is... It does, you know, it really does appear to be the case that the corporations are the all-powerful entity in society, and maybe you could argue billionaires as well.
0: Yeah, that the society increasingly is just run for the benefit of these corporations,
1: and, and, and it's really not about the human beings at all. And look at what's happening as as we're talking about this, this exact week, what's happening, the whole thing with, like, the MLB and them, uh, you know, saying we're not going to do the All-Star Game in Georgia because of what's going on with uh, how they're restricting voting rights. And, like, it's interesting because, yes, the second that a corporation – does something all of a sudden everybody's everybody's listening oh mm. a corporation did something that means like somebody stepped out of line right. you know so like they do almost have outsized power and almost like not not even just the, like he said they have personhood it's like they have extra personhood, super personhood. Yeah, the super personhood. People care way more about what a corporation is doing than some random individual. Oh, you know what I mean?
0: Not even close. I mean, not even. It's not even like equivalent to. So, for example, Amazon. I don't know how they employ hundreds of thousands of people. Like, it's not even equivalent to the collective voice of those hundreds of thousands of people, or even the collective voice of their shareholders. It's like. Way beyond mm-hmm. the power that they have and the amount of you know respect and clout that they're given, the influence that they have in the society is way beyond what the people involved um, would merit by their numbers, for sure. Yeah.
1: Um, so, what do you think of his answer on the difference between the female orgasm and the male orgasm?
0: Well, it's such an interesting. Um, I mean, it's an unknowable question, right? Is but it? I, I think so. Because really? How could you know, right? I mean, they clearly they haven't done any. I think the best you can get towards it, which is what he was talking about, is sort of the implications of the fact that women can have multiple orgasms and men can't. The fact that women appear to be turned on by like basically everything, and men are more specific. Like you can kind of triangulate your way to it, but obviously, you know, you can only have the experience that you can have.
1: I mean, but the in terms of the difference in the feel. It's very similar hardware because we all start out as females. And then for men, you know, basically you're... I don't know how to explain this without sounding like a fucking weird, creepy person. But like, yeah, your your balls drop, right? Uh-huh. And your dick comes out, okay. <laughs> right? And then for the women, just the Kyle, hardware stays inside. science. Go ahead. The hardware stays inside <laughs> for the women, right? So you would imagine that... Whatever orgasm A woman has Would be similar in feel It's just It's more happening Internally than externally
0: I don't know Right It's one of life's Great mysteries
1: (laughs) We're gonna crack that Fucking code (laughs) I got a team of researchers Working on it right now We're gonna gonna figure figure it out out. They're gonna say They're gonna crunch the numbers And say The female orgasm Is a hundred 72.9% it is 72.9% as powerful as the male orgasm or vice versa. Well, you
0: know what actually, We're gonna got, figure it out. What actually got me thinking about this recently was I watched that Black Mirror episode mm-hmm. where the dude goes into the video mm-hmm. game yes, and I it's, saw like, that. Mm-hmm. it's like virtual reality, but it's like super reality. And he wants and to fuck he's his friend, two guys, his male friend. But he, lo- he only loves to do it as a female character right. yeah. in the game. And he's telling his male friend, who they try it, by the way, in real life. And they're like, no, yeah, this is weird. Yeah. <laughs> no, we only like it in the video game yep. when you're a woman and I'm a man. And as a woman, he says, the orgasm is like, a symphony is so different. It's incredible. It just got me, th- I've not really thought that much about, like, what the actual experience is like for a man versus a
1: woman. All right. But let me ask you, your, your gut instinct, which is more powerful, the male one or the female one?
0: Well... I think because I have a bias. towards, Or is it
1: even or is it equal?
0: I have a bias towards things being equitable.
1: Mm, You want to say it's even?
0: No. So I think that the fact that men can't have multiple orgasms is maybe made up for by the fact. By the power of it. By the power of it. But that's based on nothing other than like some like silly kindergarten philosophy that I have in my brain about well, like it should be fair. Yeah but, you that's, know? <laughs> yeah,
1: but that's the thing is like we're all just speculating here because my speculation, funny enough, cuts in the other direction where I think the fact that the orgasm is internal means it almost has to be more powerful. Why? Because you're it's, it's in your body. It's your whole <laughs> body's involved. Whereas with the guy, you're just shooting off like a machine gun. <laughs> Right? I mean so it's more it's more localized and external versus internal.
0: It also that also goes against the idea though that the experience would be the same because for most women anyway, there isn't like that ejaculation, like the experience of that. So that in and of itself is there something about that
1: idea that is appealing to you?
0: It's just yeah, I I think so. It's interesting, right?
1: It's I, I you know, I actually look at it almost like It's almost like, I don't know if it was the movie Alien, but there was some movie where like the creepy. Thing shoots something out of its head or whatever, boom, and it like latches onto somebody's <laughs> face and they're like, oh, 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 trying to get it off. I view it creepy like that. You know, it's almost like really? I spread spread our seed, and it's just gross. Like <laughs> men shooting off loads in every direction. Like we have to spread our seed. Let's create more babies. It's like, ah, oh, fucking get away, you gross freaks. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, this, this took a this took a weird turn. But anyway, that's my way of saying the male orgasm strikes me as like
0: not as good,
1: gross, and like imperialistic. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, I need to spread my seed, so let me shoot it <laughs> off in every direction, you know? Whereas the female one's, like, internal and individual. That sounds
0: like and... some really, like, fringe kind of feminist ideology that would be, like, the male orgasm well, They're 100% right.
1: No, 100% right. <laughs> that shit is mad imperialistic. <laughs> You're shooting it off in every direction. Nobody even wants it. I mean, the male libido <laughs> is like a fucking shore. Are you kidding me? Uh... Pe- go talk to any guy when they were peak puberty that shit is a fu- i would if i could have pressed a button and just opted out of sexuality i'd have been like asexual See, asexual 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 now i wish
2: but now i wish
0: it. we had christopher ryan to mediate this conversation because that sounds like the very stereotypical view that he tries to debunk that like men are inherently like sex more and are more sexual than women which he's like There's not really evidence for that.
1: I'm just talking about personal experience peak puberty, Mm -hmm. where your fucking libido is a monkey on your back. You feel like you have to constantly 24-7 bust nuts just to to have a level head. (laughs) Seriously, if you're a guy, any guy out there who's gone through puberty and was peak puberty at some point, your fucking testosterone is raging. You can't see straight. Every fucking thing turns you on. That's why, That's why. like, you remember the famous story in, like, the, the Puritanical times or whatever, how they had to cover the legs of the pianos because the shape of it would turn the men on? Oh, my God. That is so <laughs> – oh, a, so a guy hilarious. peak puberty, are you kidding me? They beat off to that five times a day, and that's, that's the point. The point is it's like a monkey on your back, and it's annoying. And, you, and So I would have pressed that button in a second. Be like, I'll be asexual instead of dealing with this insane burden day in and day out. But thankfully, when you go past peak puberty, you become more of a functional human being and not just a freak. Okay. Anyway, a that the crash landing to this I've fucking conversation. A lot Jesus today. Christ. <laughs> that was a rocky landing, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah, Super I got nothing
0: else to say. <laughs> Super interesting. You can't
1: top the piano leg, the horny piano leg. You just, just there's nowhere there. to go from that. Yeah. We
0: will just well, you went. You um, you know, we could have landed on the the alien, the shooting alien, might have been like a step beyond the piano leg, but I,
1: we'll Im- leave it with the piano leg. Imperialism and nutting is imperialistic. It's imperialism. It's a fact. Yeah. So. With anyway, subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends for more science. <laughs> for
0: more incredible,
1: for more scientific super talk.
0: factually based <clears throat> science like what we've been engaging here right now. Exactly. Thanks for hanging out with us, guys. We'll see you next week.